Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. Today, we're talking about a subject very close to my heart, and that is Riga, the beautiful capital of Latvia, where I lived for all too short a time in 2017. But when I first moved there, I think many of my American friends had to get out the atlas to locate both the city and, in some cases, the country. Uh, Certainly, Riga is one of Europe's best kept secrets, but my guest today is set to change all of that. Kevin O'Connor's latest book, The House of Hemp and Butter, A History of Old Riga, is a wonderful introduction to the city's rich early history from its settlement by German missionaries to its incorporation by Peter the Great into the Russian Empire the outset of the 18th century. I'm delighted that our shared love of Riga and all things Baltic brings Professor Kevin O'Connor, Chair of the History Department at Gonzaga University, to our show today. Kevin, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to talk with somebody who's who's read my book and who shares my love for and interest in Riga. Let's begin with what originally drew you to Riga. Uh, you say in the book that you came at a time when she was kind of sloughing off the Soviet veneer and that you were smitten by it. Um, it's clearly a long-term love affair for you. And I wonder if you can tell us why um, you're so enamored of the Baltics and Riga in particular. My interest in the Baltic states goes back to my uh, PhD studies where I focused on Russian and specifically Soviet history. And there's clearly a connection between uh, Russia and the Soviet Union on the one side, and the uh, Baltic states now, formerly the Baltic republics, and earlier the Baltic provinces uh, on the other side. I was very fortunate early in my career to have the opportunity to write a book called The History of the Baltic States for Greenwood Press. And uh, that's what gave me um, the the possibility to go to the Baltic states and to uh, learn more about them and to develop my interest there. So that book was published in 2003. My first visit to Riga was just a year earlier when I was researching the history of the Baltic states. And since then, I visited Riga on numerous occasions, and eventually I decided that a book needed to be written about it. And do you speak Latvian? I wouldn't say I speak Latvian, but I can get by reading it. That's a tough language. Um, A fascinating language. And I think that's probably one of my favorite aspects of researching this book was losing myself in the the beauty of this ancient language. Uh Uh, I enjoyed studying it largely on my own. I didn't take formal classes uh, and learning Latvian and mostly I was focused on reading, Uh, but I was very fortunate to come across some uh, wonderful textbooks that focused upon, focused on the the sort of uh, the natural elements of the Latvian language, the focus on nature, Mm -hmm. the focus on family, skies, trees. Uh, And so it was a wonderful immersion into uh, a mindset, uh-huh. in a sense. Well, nature is 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 all around uh, in Latvia. It, uh, I do a lot of food writing, and it's just they're very close to the elements. I think. Um, but what about the rest of the research? Were you uh, sort of holed up in archives? Uh, the city has a wonderful library. How did you How did you go about doing the research? I did have an opportunity to do research in the wonderful uh, new state library that's located just across the river from, uh, from Old Riga. But my initial research was done um, largely through uh, interlibrary loan, mm. uh, getting lots of books, going to Riga and, and purchasing and reading books there during my initial visits in 2012. And then uh, returning in 2016, uh, at which point the new library had been completed. And I hold myself up in the Latonica room for a few weeks and was able to access all kinds of interesting materials with the help of the, of the research librarians. Well, maybe not research librarians, but with the help of the staff mm-hmm. uh, at, at, the, at the library. It's a fantastic library. And the, the wonderful way that you can sit and just look over to the old city. Um, that must have been just exactly such an inspiration. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sitting there looking at maps and reading these books, and I'm I'm looking at the bridge, one of the bridges that goes over the the, the Dagaba River into the old city. It was really inspiring. fantastic. Um, for for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, with Riga, walk us through the the wonderful title of the book. When when uh, the first when the book arrived at the New Books Network, one of the staff members was very charmed by it, but I think she had a different idea what hemp referred to. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually had to. I wouldn't say I had to fight for that title with my publisher, but I definitely had to make a case for it uh, because uh, the house of hemp and butter might not be the most obvious thing to uh, people who come across this book. So uh, the way the title came about was um, that I had a working title for a long time. It was called Riga before Russia. And I wasn't terribly happy with that title because it, because it emphasizes Russia and the book's not really about Russia. Russia certainly looms, especially in the second half of the book. The rise of the Muscovite state, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, constantly posing a threat to, uh, to Riga and the entire Livonian region. But um, I did not want readers to think that the book was focused on Russia. And so I was looking for an alternative title. And during the final stages of researching this book, I think I was actually working on chapter seven or chapter eight. I came across a, uh, a book of poems written by... Hanseatic merchants back in the 16th century. Fantastic. <laughs> and this poem uh, leaped out at me because it was a description of all the cities in the Hanseatic League. Maybe not all the cities, but many of the cities in the Hanseatic League and their particular characteristics. This city is a, as a house of corn. This city is a, a place to purchase this other product. And Riga, a house of hemp and butter. And when oh, I saw fantastic. that, it was really clear to me that that needed to be the title of the book. Perfect. You've mentioned um, something just now that I'd like to um, stop and pause for a moment to be sure that our listeners um, are clear on this. And that is the name Livonia. Um, your book is actually filled with lots of countries that no longer exist. And, and some of them our listeners may have heard of, but some they may find difficult to correctly identify or locate. Livonia is definitely one but also Corland and, and any of the others you feel are key to enjoying the book in its entirety. Sure. It's a different world. And that world was shaped by entities like the Holy Roman empire, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, Muscovite Russia. These are not places that exist today in those forms. And likewise with Livonia and Corland. So let me define what those terms are. Portland is the western part of Latvia, the horn of Latvia that really gives the country its shape. And it has not, at, at different times, it's been a semi independent duchy, the Duchy of Courland, for example, back in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and then there's Livonia itself. Livonia is named after the indigenous tribes that German merchants encountered back in the 12th century when they first arrived on the Daugava River. Uh, so the Livonians are those people, the natives who spoke um, Livish language or Livonian language. They were very small in number at the time of the arrival of the Germans, and they were very quickly converted to Christianity for the most part, and eventually assimilated into the Latvian nation. But the Latvians speak a different language. So you've got different Latvian tribes like Salonians, Latgalians and so forth, and they merged over time to become an identifiable Latvian nation. The Livonians, or the Livs, also merged into the Latvian nation, but their language is actually much closer to the Estonian language spoken in the north. So in any event, Livonia takes its name from the Livish peoples, or the Livonian peoples, and then Livonia itself has multiple meanings. The original meaning of Livonia specifically, specifically referred to those areas where they encountered the Livonian peoples. Over time, though, Livonia came to have a broader meaning that could include uh, parts of Estonia as well. So Livonia is, itself is kind of a fungible concept. It means different things to different peoples, depending on when we're talking about. In general, though, when we're talking about the Middle Ages, Livonia refers to basically much of Latvia and Estonia. I see. Um, look, throughout the book, you make it clear that the city is always multinational. It's always polyglot. And it is today, I think. Um, and that appears to be in the book, sometimes a strength and other times kind of a weakness in the period that, that you cover. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that sort of multinational aspect of Riga. 
Yeah, from the very beginning, Riga was a multinational city. When the Germans arrived back in the 12th century, they would have found the Livonian peoples. They would have also found some Slavic peoples called Vens living in the area. And of course, the Germans uh, settled in the region as well. And eventually, Riga became home to fleeing refugees, as peasants who were caught up in the, in the Northern Crusade. Lithuanians would settle in Riga as well. Uh, so eventually, by the time you get to uh, the middle of the 13th century, Riga is a city that is composed of a dominant class of Germans and then a laboring class of Latvians and also some Lithuanians as well. Over time, though, um, as Riga experiences various wars, as it experiences migrations, uh, the composition of the population changes. For the most part, from the 13th until the end of the 19th century, or until the middle of the 19th century, Germans were the dominant element. But then, as industrialization took place during the 19th century, Latvians migrated to Riga, and they formed the, the dominant group within Riga. And then you also had a Russian minority and a Jewish minority as well, not to mention some Poles and some Lithuanians. And then, of course, today... <laughs> Anybody knows about, uh, if you visit Riga today, you're as likely to hear Russian as you are Latvian. And you're not likely to hear German at all unless you encounter some tourists. That's right. So, uh, yeah. It's it, all, all of the um, menus and restaurants are in three languages, in Latvian and English and Russian. And it's perfect for my Russian husband and me. <laughs> it was the perfect place for us to live. Um, so set the stage for us at the beginning of, of your story. What's going on in Europe that allows um, the Germans to come to Riga? And I think it's a story of location, location, location. Riga has a location that is supremely advantageous for its settlers. And set the stage for us with, with that issue. That's exactly it. Riga's location has been its great blessing. And it's also been its great curse because um, it becomes an object of other nations' lust. Um, precisely because it is located between East and West, because it has been this trade hub that connects the Russian interior to Western European markets. And that's what initially drew uh, the German traders to the region back in the 12th century. And we should keep in mind that they were preceded by uh, Norse traders back in the, uh, the 9th and 10th centuries who had traversed the Dagava River, who had traded with Russians and who had exported their goods to uh, consumers, um, presumably in Western Europe. So when the Germans arrived in the 12th century, they were, um, they were arriving into a network in a sense that already had begun to develop. And they developed that network further and, of course, um, turned Riga from a settlement into a city and a, and a significant trading hub in uh, northeastern Europe. So the situation um, also reflects a dynamism that was taking place in Western Europe around the 12th century. There's a population explosion. There's a commercial explosion. And what I mean by that is that Germans have arrived on the Baltic Sea. They're searching for uh, goods from the east, and they're bringing them back to, to Western Europe. And Russia uh, was, a, was a very capable supplier of goods like furs, for example. Um, those were, the, as far as value is concerned, furs were the most valuable thing that Riga was exporting from Russia to Western Europe. And then other goods uh, would eventually become uh, just as prominent, uh, mostly goods from the forested interior, uh, grains, lumber, and so forth. And beeswax. And beeswax, of beeswax. course. Beeswax. I failed to mention beeswax, which was one of the uh, most important commercial products exchanged uh, between Riga and the West back in the 13th and 14th centuries. Sure. It's amazing. The list is, is sort of funny. For fur, beeswax, um, resin, um, it's a weird combination. But it seems it seems to have really kind of powered the engine of the economy of the day. Um, but there's also a religious aspect to it, isn't there? And I, and I wonder if you'd speak about the, the the sort of uneasy. It seemed to me an uneasy tandem between trade and religion um, in the beginning of Riga's history, and then um, the military kind of gets in, into the mix, and it becomes very interesting. Exactly, you have a convergence of interests centering on this region uh, at the end of the 12th century. You have merchants who want to make a buck. You've got um, priests who want to, or I should say clerics in general, who want to expand the influence of the Latin church 
into areas where orthodoxy was beginning to encroach. And then, of course, you have the knights who need something to do, and of course, who also want uh, land and privileges that come from, um, from, from the opportunities created by the crusading adventures in the, uh, in the 12th and the 13th centuries. So then we can say that Riga was founded as a missionary see. It's founded as a, uh, a military center, and it's also founded as a trading hub. And the person who encapsulates all this is the founder of Riga, Albert of Buxhoven. Albert was the first bishop of Riga. He was responsible for uh, helping to organize the crusade in uh, the Livonian lands. And he also assured that Riga would have trading privileges in the region. In other words, that Riga would be the main center through which goods would flow on their way out to Western Europe. So in that sense, uh, Albert made sure that Riga would have an important position in east-west trade. So here we have a cleric, a priest, the founder of the city of Riga, making sure that the city was uh, privileged in terms of its commercial relations with the outside world. And uh, Albert, I should also mention, was instrumental in getting a military order uh, stationed in Riga as well. That was the Order of Sword Brothers that was responsible for the conquest that took place in the first three decades of the 13th century. And tell us more about the Brotherhood and, and their um, participation in the Northern Crusades. This is part of the general crusading movement of the 13th century, but in a different part of the world and with a slightly different agenda. And I, I find with my um, cruise passengers, they're not always as familiar with, with this aspect of the crusading uh, era. So I wonder if you could also briefly outline what the Northern Crusades were and um, how Riga played a part in them. Right. Okay. Everybody knows about the Crusades to the Holy Land, but very few people know much about the Northern Crusade. Yet it can be argued that the effects of the Northern Crusade were no less consequential uh, in the sense that uh, Christianity stuck in Northeastern Europe uh, and the influence of the Catholic Church uh, was expanded uh, during the 13th century in a, in a permanent way, or at least up through the Reformation anyway. But the, the purpose of the Crusade was to accomplish a couple of things. Um, for one, it was about extending the reach of the Catholic Church in areas where it had failed to reach, especially in Northern and Northeastern Europe. So during the crusading era, try to imagine the Catholic Church is waging wars in the Holy Land. It is also waging wars in Spain, the Reconquista, that is the attempts to reconquer lands that were believed to have been Christian that had been taken over by Muslims. So there's this anti-Muslim animus to the Crusades, yet the Northern Crusade did not reflect an anti-Muslim animus. It was more about converting pagans uh, who are not necessarily considered evil, uh, perhaps innocents in a sense, uh, but, uh, but the idea was to convert these natives and to bring their lands into the fold of Christianity, especially given the fact that orthodoxy seemed to be a competitor with the Catholic Church at this time. Not so much that the Russians were aggressive about spreading orthodoxy, but the Russian presence was certainly clear in Eastern Estonia and in what is today Eastern Latvia back during the 11th and 12th centuries. So when the Catholics arrived at the end of the 12th century, uh, they found a formidable competitor, or at least what they believed to be a formidable competitor in the form of Russian orthodoxy. Right. And so to a certain extent, um, you say that the Crusades are, are a success because um, the Christianity really takes root um, and the city begins to, to really prosper. And throughout the book, there, there is an emphasis on the real importance of being a citizen of the city. And I wonder if you would talk about eligibility to be a citizen and, and what rights and privileges went along with being a citizen. Um, and how would these be enforced in the 13th century? Before I do that, I wonder if I might um, latch on to uh, the success of the Crusades. Yeah, please. Um, they're successful, you're correct, in saying they're successful in the sense of their long-term impact. But one also needs to emphasize the, the tragedy of the Northern Crusade as well. That is, in the, their efforts to impose a Christian world and a Christian worldview and to embed it in Western networks, the uh, conquerors of the region devastated the peoples, the indigenous peoples, mm. that is the Latvian tribes, the Livonian tribes, the Estonian tribes, the Prussians. We've all heard of the Prussians, but there are no Prussians left today. They were to a large extent 
um, annihilated during the Northern Crusades, and eventually they merged into the German nation. And that's how uh, Prussia got its name, is from peoples who no longer exist. Likewise, Leonia gets its name from peoples who no longer exist. So it's important to emphasize that the Northern Crusades were devastating for the peoples who lived there and resulted in massive depopulation of many of the lands that were uh, taken in by the, the Christian world. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to clarify no, absolutely. that. Absolutely. I, I, I certainly don't want my listeners to come away with me thinking that the Crusades were a runaway success because there's a lot of suffering um, as a result of this. Um, but I can I can turn to your question about um, citizenship. The citizenship in in the city. Yeah. Can you rephrase your question, please? Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I I just noticed throughout the book there is um, a real emphasis on the importance of being a citizen and what that means and what privileges and rights go with it. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about who is eligible uh, to become a citizen of Riga and what are these rights that that they enjoy and how are those enforced or um, protected in in the in the 13th century? In the earliest days. Um, Riga had very loose citizenship policies. Uh, if you could afford to pay a half of a silver mark back in the, uh, say the 1220s or 1230s, you were eligible to become a, a citizen of Riga. Well, since a half a silver mark was equivalent to four ounces of silver, it meant that not everybody could become a citizen. So in effect, what this really meant was that German merchants, wealthier people, could um, become citizens. So you have citizens and you have non-citizens. You have Germans, and you have there's Deutsche, and you also have Undeutsche, there's the last <laughs> who are who are not German, and there are um, there are social distinctions between them, and there are also increasingly legal distinctions between them as well. So, if you are a German, you are a member of a ruling class. Uh, the Germans comprise the priesthood. The Germans comprise the um, the upper levels of the orders, as the knightly orders. Uh, the Germans comprised the merchant class as well. Latvians in Deutsche were mostly consigned to service type jobs, and they did not enjoy the same rights of citizenship as, uh, as Germans did. Let me give you a specific example, the right to join guilds. Mm. There's the great guild, that is the guild of the merchants, and only wealthy merchants can enter. So it basically meant that Latvians could not enter. Uh, and then there's the small guild, and the small guild was the crafts guild shoemakers, leather workers, and so forth. Over time, what happens is that uh, Latvians who had been allowed to have their own little fraternities within the small guild are no longer allowed to uh, organize their own fraternities by the end of the, by the 14th and 15th centuries. So for example, there were guilds of things like Coopers uh, that Latvians could belong to. And eventually these were taken over by Germans. So it just give you, gives you an example of the different kinds of privileges that some groups have and other groups do not enjoy. If you are a German, you uh, enjoy the privileges of citizenship. And if you are a Latvian, um, you were consigned to a second-class status in, uh, in Regan society. I see. How is this related to um, Riga's membership in the Hansa, in the Hanseatic League? Riga's membership in the Hanseatic League comes about during the course of the 13th century as the Hanseatic League is coalescing around cities like Lübeck, uh, which is the, the center of the Hanseatic League, and other cities like London in the west and Novgorod in the east. Riga became a member of the Hanseatic League, I want to say in 1282, I can't remember the exact year, but I think it was uh, towards the end of the 13th century. And what this meant was that Riga had uh, certain privileges in the overall trade that was taking place in the Baltic Sea. After all, the Baltic Sea was the center of the Hanseatic trade. So the idea of Hansa merchants was that they uh, would work together according to common rules. They had their own uh, trading rules. They had a court in Lübeck, and uh, and Riga participated in all these customs and was uh, was an active member of the Hanseatic League. So that meant that as far as the great traders of Riga were concerned, the great traders of Riga, the members of the great guild, had to conform to the laws and rules laid down by the Hanseatic League. So how is, how is this idea of citizenship related to Riga's um, membership in the Hanseatic League? Well, let me first explain what the Hanseatic League was. 
The Hanseatic League was a league of northern trading cities, primarily German trading cities, but also including um, Bergen and London and Novgorod, uh, which were non-German cities, but Germans were active in the trade of all these cities. The idea was to provide them with a set of common rules and conventions and even a uh, a court that was located in Lübeck, which was the hub of um, the Hanseatic League and and a hub of east-west trade. So Riga became a member of the Hanseatic League, uh, I want to say in the year 1282, certainly sometime in the late 13th century, and was joined by other major trading cities of the Eastern Baltic, like Tallinn, which was known as Rival at that time, and uh, various other Livonian cities. Members of the, of the Great Guild were merchants who participated in the overseas trade that went through Riga. And so those merchants would ha- were, were beholden to the rules and laws of the Hanseatic League. Those cities that were members of the Hanseatic League enjoyed certain privileges in trading. And basically, if you were not a member of the Hanseatic League, uh, you, were, you were not uh, allowed to, uh, to trade with other members. Um, as far as the relationship between citizenship is concerned, uh, the, the relationship between citizenship and the Hanseatic League we can say that Riga's merchants might often be citizens of multiple cities in the Hanseatic League, especially in the early days. In the 14th century, it was not uncommon for a merchant to be a citizen of Riga, perhaps Lubeck, and perhaps another city, uh, because they were itinerant. They were moving from one city to the next uh, as they managed uh, their merchandise. I see. Um, and in the book, you have a, um, a great section on l- sort of ordinary life at this time, which seems like it's very lively. There's a, there's a lot of sort of public parties, um, various organizations, particularly um, one with an interesting name, the Brotherhood of the Blackheads, whose building is one of the iconic symbols of the city. But um, people, when they first visit Riga, are slightly taken aback by what a blackhead might be. <laughs> um, I wonder if you'd walk us through this kind of party party season and who the blackheads are. Yeah, so if you've been to Riga, you've probably seen the House of Blackheads. It's that uh, lovely Baroque building on the town hall square, and it was destroyed during World War II. And it was a blank spot in the city for a long time. And then it was rebuilt um, to look like the old building um, around 1999, about 20 years ago. But the the building itself goes back hundreds of years uh, to a time when there was an organization called the Blackheads. And the Blackheads were basically a fraternity of unmarried traders who um, made a home in Riga, or they might make a home in one of the other Hanseatic cities. And they took as their... Uh, I don't want to say mascot, their symbol, um, a Moor, that is um, a, a dark-skinned person from Africa. And so as a result, it became known as the House of, uh, of Blackheads uh, because of this particular symbol. In any event, what the Blackheads did was they were young men who were basically apprentices as traders. They were eventually going to inherit their father's positions in, uh, as traders in the Hanseatic League. And so they would get their training in different cities in Europe. So uh, in Riga, you would have uh, several dozen, maybe a couple of hundred uh, young men who were members of the Blackheads fraternity, and uh, they were basically learning learning their craft. I see. And um, lots of kind of boisterous uh, parties and and celebrations, particularly around Lent. Absolutely. And uh, I was really delighted to read... um, some wonderful materials on this stuff. I have to credit uh, my colleague Anu Mand, who has written about uh, the festivals of, uh, of medieval Livonia, and one of my chapters borrows heavily from her book on uh, on this particular subject, which describes the way that the blackheads and the other privileged peoples in Riga would organize during holidays uh, like Christmas and uh, and Lent, and. Uh, particularly prominent in these celebrations were, of course, the young men of the Blackheads fraternity. Uh, they would you know, mm-hmm. in the singing and the dancing and the carrying of torches and in the, uh, in the games uh, that would be played on such occasions. Uh, that is, games involving horses, games involving archery and uh, dancing and various other uh, kinds of fun stuff that, that young men would like to do. 
Excellent. Um, with all this, um, the, the merchants living, living this very prosperous life, it's, it's understandable that they're keen to keep the peace and, and keep the trade flowing very smoothly. But as time goes by, your book makes clear, this is kind of difficult given the, the greater Northern European political scene. What happens next uh, to the, the people of Riga and how the, the church and the, and the town councillors and the knights try and negotiate their own internal uh, sort of uneasy truce, but also navigate the bigger stuff going on in Northern Europe that they're caught up in. That is the tragedy of the region, not only in the Middle Ages, but even today. That is a relatively minor, relatively weak power surrounded by ambitious neighbors, uh, as was the case in the 20th century for Latvia. So it was for Livonia and for Riga back in the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Uh, especially as we get to the early modern era and we witness the rise of larger states like Poland, Lithuania, uh, Muscovite state, and the Swedish empire. But before we get to those troubles, we need to consider what's going on back in the 13th and 14th centuries when you have inside Riga, multiple groups competing with each other for power and influence. Uh, These groups were Germans, That is, we're talking about priests, we're talking about merchants, and we're talking about knights. And they had an uneasy relationship with each other during the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. That is, during the height of uh, medieval Riga. Um, We can see this, for example, in uh, matters of trade. The Riga merchants wanted uh, to enjoy an exclusive monopoly over the trade that went through Riga, but it's quite clear that the, uh, the order was also heavily involved in trade. And in fact, it was dependent upon the trade of products like amber, uh, which, uh, which helped them to replenish their coffers so, they continue, so that they could continue the fight. Meanwhile, there's the position of the Catholic Church. By 1255, Riga has been raised to the position of an archbishopric, which gives it uh, a great deal of influence throughout the entire region. The archbishopric would typically come into conflict with the knights, um, because over over issues of power, over issues of land, over and especially over issues of expansion during the during the northern war, as during during the northern crusade, as more and more land fell into the hands of knights, is the question about who gets what. So these are the kinds of concerns then that that shaped the relationships between the religious class, the uh, military class, and the uh, and the commercial class. And the upshot of that is that Riga was involved in several civil wars during the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. There's one civil war that lasted for 33 years, from 1297 to 1330, uh, but the issues were not completely resolved by that civil war, and another one broke out in the 1480s and lasted until the early 1490s. Um, and the results were not always conclusive in these civil wars. <laughs> You describe it very well as a TV series and, you know, one pilot ends and then the next season begins. <laughs> it is kind of a constant, like, multi-century uh, conflict, isn't it? Yeah, and I did it that way because I felt like uh, I'm constantly introducing new characters and new subplots. Yeah. And so, um, so conceptualizing it as a, uh, as a soap opera almost uh, seemed to be the, the, the way to go about it, especially when you have these scheming priests and right. these uh, angry knights. <laughs> And then you have the emergence of uh, outside players like Poland, Lithuania, and the Muscovite state headed by Ivan III, and then Ivan the Terrible. These are outsized personalities. Absolutely. And and so it's fun to treat them in uh, a kind of episodic kind of way that is focusing on uh, one episode at a time where uh, one player emerges, things change, and then another player emerges and uh, the situation changes even further. It was, it was a lot of fun to write and also very difficult to organize. For example... It's, it's, a, it's a great read, um, for sure. <laughs> One Clips right along. For example, is if you're, when you're dealing with these conflicts between the priests, I should say, if you're dealing with these conflicts between the knights and the archbishops, the characters are constantly changing, but the conflict is going on for 200 years. Uh-huh. So how many, <laughs> how many archbishops do I want to mention? <laughs> how many order, right. order masters do I want to mention? So you have to kind of distill it into a few personalities. So, so it wasn't so much the personalities as the, um, the areas and spheres of influence that would be inherited um, as each new leader of whichever organization would rise to, to power. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And, and eventually, eventually um, Riga gets caught up in the, 
big sweeping mess that is um, the Reformation and takes to Protestantism really quite quickly and and almost um, too quickly. I, I was sort of ready for a big struggle, but Riga seems to say, oh, yeah, this is for us. Why is that? What what is it about Protestantism that that is so appealing to the to the Regans? Well, I think on the one hand, Protestantism was appealing because of its promise of personal liberation and promises of a direct connection between believers and the Savior um, without the intermediary of the Catholic Church. And I think that was very appealing to a lot of people, especially when there are tensions between um, the, the laity and um, and the upper ranks of the Catholic Church concerning questions like simony, the uh, selling of church offices, uh, over questions of corruption. And uh, as you're probably aware, during the early 1500s, Rome was undergoing a beautification process that was possible largely because of the sale of indulgences that promised to spring people out of purgatory. Uh, so there's a lot of, lot of concerns about corruption within the Catholic Church. Um, and I think that made the arrival of Luther's message all that more appealing. And you notice that there is a, there's a pattern to where the Reformation made an impact. Basically, the further away you were from Rome, the more likely your region was to go over to Protestantism back in the early 1500s. Uh, so those regions that felt that Rome was distant and they were being built by, uh, by Rome. Um, that certainly contributed to that sense of uh, tension and irritation. And one interesting offshoot or, or sort of um, subplot, I guess, to the, to the rise of Protestantism in Riga is that suddenly the Latvian language begins to have something of a, of a blossoming, a flowering. Um, are those are those con- as connected as I'm making them in my question, or um, are they just happening in, in parallel time frame? Oh, absolutely. Um, during the Reformation, the Catholic Church, as well as the Protestant Church, <laughs> uh, the Lutheran Church, rather, realizes that uh, the peasants are still largely pagan. Uh, that is, they may have adopted um, certain Christian practices, but those practices were maintained alongside their old indigenous uh, pagan practices. Uh, and Catholic clerics were were understandably concerned by this, but the mm-hmm. problem was that very few of them had bothered to learn the local languages. So one of the upshots of the Reformation is that um, the pastors who go out to the countryside are being encouraged more to learn the local languages so they can deliver the word of God in a language that the locals can understand. And this in turn stimulates uh, translation of the Bible or portions of the Bible into local languages. Uh, so that, that's not to say that the Old Testament, or, or to say that the New Testament suddenly appears in Latvian in 1525, but we're starting to see fragments of translations uh, appearing as, um, as men of God are trying to reach the Latvian people uh, during this period. So the Reformation, in fact, stimulates all kinds of, um, uh, it, it stimulates learning, it stimulates mm-hmm. the creation of libraries, and uh, it stimulates an interest in learning the Latvian language and the beginnings of recording it. And so this is probably when the documents that you're studying begin to be uh, written in Latvian language, presumably before well, then they would be in some, German or Latin? or Some religious documents begin to appear in Latvian, um, but I wouldn't say as uh, items of research for my book. Um, the mm. Latvian materials that I used are largely contemporary, written by historians of the ninth, of the twentieth century. I that see. was uh, okay. my main use of, of Latvian, um, but I did not need to go back to a sixteenth century uh, translated Latvian text uh, for, for writing this book. That that would have been that would have been onerous. I, I would have thought. Onerous <laughs> <laughs> enough. And there was and, the question and, also of. Do, do I learn uh, low German? Oh, there <laughs> you go. <laughs> um, because that was the lingua franca, wasn't it, in the, in the whole Baltic region um, during, during this uh, period of the Middle Ages, was the low German. Right, and low German is, right. uh, is, is, is kind of related to Dutch, I suppose, today. Um, but mm. it's largely gone um, now 
uh, high German is the, is the common tongue among Germans, even in that part of the world. Right. And just as they've, they've beginning to, to learn all these great languages and, and everything's going well, they need to learn a new language because we see at this point the steady rise of Russia, um, who's, which has always been kind of a looming, hulking presence in your book, sort of off somewhere in the East. But at, this is the point in the Livonian War um, and Riga's time under Polish rule that Russia really begins to come center stage. Um, how does this happen and um, what happens in the subsequent period? Sure. Uh, Russia's relationship with Riga is really fascinating and uh, certainly forms a core element of the book. Going back to the 13th and 12th centuries, when, uh, or even earlier, when Orthodox missionaries and Russian traders began to arrive in eastern Latvia and Estonia. But um, the days of the old Kievan Rus came to an end, really, back in the 13th century when the Mongols arrived and shattered the old Kievan Rus. And the result was that Russia, the Rus, lost territories that were gained by an expanding Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania had been a pagan country. It converted over to Christianity, and in the course of time, it acquired many of the territories that the old Kievan Rus could no longer hold. The point being that hundreds of years later, Russia comes back, this time centered around the city of Moscow, and Russia's rulers are determined to gain back territories that they felt had been unfairly taken away from Ruth back in the 13th centuries and that had been acquired by Lithuania. So there's a great deal of tension then between the Muscovite state and the Lithuanian state. Now add to that that the Lithuanian state basically marries into the Polish state that is creating a dynastic union. And so when we're talking about Lithuania, I'm really talking about Poland-Lithuania, uh, the Commonwealth. So you have emerging around Riga, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which will rule Riga from 1581 to 1621. Then you also have the emergence of Muscovy in the east, which is reclaiming territories that had lost back in the 13th and 14th centuries. So, for example, when the Livonian War broke out at the end of the 1550s, the Russian ruler at the time was Ivan the Terrible, and he made the claim that... um, Orthodox peoples living in Livonia were being abused, that churches that were Russian churches gone over to other other religions, and moreover, that Russia was the protector of Estonia, going back to uh, a deal that had been made between a um, a Russian prince back in the 11th century and a a local uh, pagan ruler. Uh, So... In other words, Ivan the Terrible was claiming patrimony over Livonia, going back to uh, events that had taken place back in the 11th century. And it's a playbook that that continues to work well, does isn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> for the Russians. Uh, it's, it's hard not to see the parallels between Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Stalin, and Putin when it comes to Russia's relationship with its uh, with its neighbors. The the real thing. One thing we have to consider, though, is Russia's ambitions in the region that were thwarted by the Western countries. That is, by the time that Ivan the Terrible makes his bid for um, influence in the Baltic area, that region had been, the Baltic Sea had been effectively blocked off by the Swedes and also been blocked off by the Livonian merchants who claimed the exclusive right to handle the goods that were coming from Russia. So Ivan the Terrible and other Russian rulers felt that Russia had gotten a raw deal by virtue of the fact that it was German traders who were making the profits off of goods coming from Russia being exported to the West. So Ivan the Terrible's point, I suppose, is that not only does Russia have the right to rule these lands, but that Russia needs an outlet to the Baltic Sea, which is something that he fails to achieve, but that uh, Peter the Great will take up um, 150 years later. Right. But before we get to Peter, let's talk about the Swedish era, because it seems to be looked back on by the Regans as kind of the good old, you you mentioned the phrase, the good old Swedish days. Um, What is so great about being ruled by the Swedes if you're you're in uh, 17th century Riga? I think what's great about being ruled by the Swedes is that it's better than being ruled by the Poles or the Russians. (laughs) There you go. It's an 89, 90-year period sandwiched between Polish rule and 200 years of Russian rule. And Polish rule was remembered for 
uh, its impositions. Russia, I, I should say Riga, had never really been ruled by a foreign king before. It had been part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it had been largely left on its own. And then in 1560s, uh, Poland is entertaining aspirations of taking over Riga. By 1581, it manages to achieve this. And so now you have um, monarchical rule in Riga, which was a foreign concept for Regans who had been largely used to running their own affairs. Now, this doesn't really change when the Swedes come along. The Swedes also are, are, are monarchists. They have an empire and a king over in Stockholm who is expecting the town council to, uh, conf- to conform to his wishes. But the benefits of Swedish rule quickly became obvious as the Swedes imposed an order on Riga and upon Livonia that had never existed before. The Swedes built roads. They built drainage ditches. They modernized um, the, the fortifications of Riga. They imposed a religious order on Riga that had been missing uh, as well. That is, Protestantism became very secure in Riga during the 17th century. And also for the peasants living outside of Riga, there were considerable improvements of what as well. Not only are they getting uh, greater access to the word of God, but um, the uh, impositions of serfdom are lessening during the course of Swedish rule. So that by the end of the Swedish era, it seemed like serfdom was almost a thing of the past. But then Russia takes over in the early 1700s and reimposes uh, serfdom and reimposes uh, foreign control. So the Swedish era then is remembered for relative enlightenment, for modernizing reforms, for um, and also for its uh, its commercial dynamism as well. Because during the 17th century, Riga was. Uh, Sweden's main port, and it was an important provider of goods from the uh, Polish-Lithuanian interior uh, to markets in Western Europe. So Riga was bringing in a lot of uh, revenue uh, for the the Swedish Empire, and not only for the Swedish Empire, but it was also bringing in revenue for Regans themselves. Right, and then it all it all collapses. And and one of the lovely passages in your book um, refers to um, one of Riga's main, major bells. Um, church bells on which is engraved, um, Lord save us from floods, plagues, and the Russians, <laughs> which kind of encapsulates the 18th century perfectly. <laughs> um, can you tell us the, the floods, plagues, and Russians, um, this menace in the East now takes the shape of, of Peter the Great and his relentless march towards the Baltic coast. Um, how does Riga get caught in the crosshairs and what happens? Uh, floods, plagues, and Russians. <laughs> I, know, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It becomes particularly apparent that these are some of the greatest threats to Riga during the Great Northern War. Now, um, plagues and floods had long, um, had long posed a threat to Riga, going back to its earliest days. But uh, it was during the early 1700s when Riga became embroiled in this catastrophic conflict that uh, plagues, floods, and Russians... Uh, um, um, emerged. So let me explain a little bit about how Riga became involved in these wars. During the course of the 17th century, while Sweden ruled this Baltic empire, other countries were entertaining uh, grander ambitions as well, in particular Russia, which had been thwarted in its earlier efforts to gain an outlet to the Baltic Sea. Well, by the early 17, by 1700, Russia's ruler sees his opportunity. What happened was basically this. Sweden's ruler, Charles XI, died, leaving his heir as a 15-year-old named Charles XII. At the time, Poland was entertaining ambitions of regaining Riga. Uh, Russia is looking at uh, the the opportunity of gaining influence in the Baltic Sea by driving the the Swedes out. And Peter Peter the Great, that is, and the uh, Polish ruler, uh, Augustus the Strong, um, see an opportunity to oust Sweden from this region. And so they, uh, they and Denmark, that is Poland, Russia, and Denmark, conspire together to try to uh, push Sweden out of, uh, out of the, the southern Baltic and particularly out of Riga. So in this way, Riga gets caught up in a catastrophic conflict that will swirl around it for 21 years from 1700 to 1721. As for Riga itself, its fate was decided by 1710 when it was incorporated by the Russian Empire. But in between, 
Riga experiences tragedies that are uh, almost biblical in their uh, proportion. Once again, floods, plagues, and Russians. In 1709, let's use this as a case study. In 1709, um, the world is closing in on Riga. Russia is experiencing some victories, pushing back the Swedes. There's um, battles in Narva and Poltava, and now um, Riga is, uh, is, is, is next for um, Russian conquest. Well, in 1709, Riga experiences these amazing tragedies. For example, in um, April or May of 1709, Riga experiences a great flood. Riga had experienced many great floods before. About once every decade, there would be a, a fairly catastrophic flood, but the one in 1709 was among the worst in its history. The reasons for these floods were pretty clear. That is, the ice on the Daugava would melt. Uh, uh, but the problem is that um, as the uh, water would drift towards the, the Baltic Sea, it would get caught up behind these uh, blocks of ice that would, that, would, um, that would not be able to be let out into the Baltic Sea. So the ice would rise. And in the case of 1709, um, the city was inundated, um, even to the point of reaching rooftops. Uh, there's a legend that uh, in the Dome Cathedral, fish could be swimming, seen swimming in the uh, in the interior uh, as a result oh of this great flood. So hundreds of people died during the flood of 1709. In addition, Riga was just about to be placed under a Russian siege, and that siege would last from nine months, from 1709 to 1710. And what also happens in 1710, in May of that year, uh, an individual arrives at the Charles Gate in Riga, which is one of the uh, main entrances to the city, and appears to have plague-like symptoms. At first, they think it's spotted fever. Uh, then it turns out to be the Black Death that has been raging through the entire Baltic Sea area ever since 1702. It arrives in Riga in 1710 and kills thousands of people. So not only does it kill thousands of Rigans, it's also killing people in the countryside who are flocking to Riga to find safety from the war, from the plague. <laughs> and uh, so in Riga, you just have this, uh, no overused expression, but it's a perfect storm. Perfect plagues. storm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Russians. And the Russians. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> and of course, Peter is, is triumphant. And, and you, that's you sort of end right there when Riga is at the nadir of her power uh, of influence. But one thing you, one thought you leave us with is, is that the essential Western character of the city is forced into this kind of uneasy Eastern orientation that never really fits perfectly. Um, is and and how how do you see that that issue? And then and then how, if you look at Riga today, is that still a, a theme? Riga's relationship with Russia has always been very complicated. And it goes back to these uh, struggles that took place during the Middle Ages and during the early modern era. I think it's fairly safe to say that most of Riga's uh, counselors, as the rulers of the city, did not want to come under Russian rule, but they had little choice given the situation that had unfolded in the early 1700s. Coming under Russian rule would mean the possibility of having a foreign religion imposed upon Riga. Riga had already been through that. They had gone from Catholicism to Protestantism, and that Protestantism had been confirmed by 100 years of Swedish rule. And so the prospect of having to possibly convert to orthodoxy was something that very much concerned the citizens of Riga. But here's what we can say about Peter the Great. Peter the Great offers very flexible and generous terms uh, for the capitulation that is arranged in uh, 1710. Uh, or, or actually the capitulation is formalized only in 1721 with the conclusion of the Great Northern War, but the terms were, were fairly liberal. Riga would keep its town council. Uh, Riga would uh, allow the town council to continue to uh, continue its tax collecting functions, for example. Um, over time, of course, what happens is that Riga becomes more and more integrated into the Russian Empire. And by the time you get to the 19th century, you have russification measures being imposed upon uh, the, uh, the Latvian provinces, the Estonian provinces, and other provinces of the Russian Empire. Uh, this could not have been foreseen so much maybe in 1710, but it does underline the fact that once Riga becomes part of the Russian Empire, it loses its sense of independence. Uh, it loses a great deal of its freedom of maneuver, 
and now it's simply a modest outpost in a large and sprawling empire that is soon to play second fiddle to St. Petersburg, because St. Petersburg is founded around the same time. St. Petersburg is founded as uh, Russia's window in the West in the year 1703, and Russia invests much more in developing St. Petersburg than it does in developing Riga. And so uh, Petersburg will become the window on the West, Petersburg will become a main port, and Riga will sink into a uh, second-class position within the Russian Empire until it begins as massive industrialization in the late 19th century and reemerges in a different way at this time. And this is the great sort of seaports um, like Wenspils and, and others. Is that right? Yes, I'm sorry, your, your, your question? The, the, great, the great seaport um, at Wenspils um, with, the, yeah, with the sort of... Yes, it becomes another yeah. competitor for Riga, for sure. Right. Um, so this begins then 200 years of Russian rule, followed by, in short order, another 50 years of Soviet rule. Uh, so those tensions between Riga and Russia um, were present not only in the 18th and 19th centuries, but continued throughout the 20th century. And I think it's pretty uh, safe to say that there are concerns in uh, Riga today about um, uh, about. The, Developments that are taking place in Russia and Russia's relationship with the outside world. Oh, dear. Well, certainly enough material for another book. Are you are you planning to continue the story of Riga, or are you working on something else at the moment? I am certainly considering this. In fact, um, I should probably be honest with our our listeners and say that the book that I wrote was a total accident. Uh, so it's not the book I intended oh. to write. I, I intended to write the book on modern Riga. <laughs> When I first went to Riga during my first visit in 2002, it wasn't so much the ancient stuff or say the medieval things that interested me. It was more uh, the modern relationship between uh, the Russian Empire and Riga and later on the Soviet Union and Riga. Uh, as a Soviet historian, a modern historian, that's what really interested me. And so that's the book I actually set out to write. I actually set out to write the book on the 19th and 20th centuries. And I ended up writing the prequel. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, but there's oh that's so much to look forward to because uh one thing i i missed in your book and i i had a feeling you weren't going to get to it but was the sort of rich history of jewish life in riga which is a fascinating chapter you refer to it at the end um but i I think that's that's worth a whole book right there Um, and and then that's something that's not going to happen until the 19th century when a, a Jewish presence becomes uh, clear in Riga. Uh, so yeah, my book doesn't quite get up to that time and it doesn't no. uh, quite develop the relationship that will develop between Peter the Great and Riga, which I find fascinating in its own right. And I think there's real potential for a small article just on Riga and, uh, and Peter the Great. He had a, a vexed oh. relationship with the city going back to his grand embassy in 1697 when he was treated poorly by the Swedes. He comes back a few years later with three bombs in his hands and launches uh, the siege of Riga in 1709. So Peter does get his revenge. He ends up establishing a palace in the city. He visits the city on multiple occasions, uh, befriends a couple of the important traders in Riga. And on the 200th anniversary of Riga's admission into the Russian Empire, that is, in 1910, 200 years later, Riga unveiled a statue of Peter the Great that was located exactly where the Freedom Monument is right now. So that, for, for, for several years, the statue of Peter the Great kind of illustrated this relationship between the imperial center and the Latvian uh, periphery. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. Well, for for our listeners who who want to keep uh, keep track of of your next uh, articles about Riga and Soviet history, where can we find you in the World Wide Web that we're all living in now with coronavirus? I have a website called RigaHistory.com, and there you can find some maps and some useful information about the history of uh, Riga. And uh, anything that I, anything new that I produce, I will certainly include links on um, the week, on the on the website uh, rigahistory.com. Oh, that's great. Well, that's about all we have time for today. But the book, once again, is The House of Hemp and Butter, A History of Old Riga, um, 2019, Cornell University Press by Professor Kevin O'Connor, Chair of History at Gonzaga University. Kevin, thank you so much for this uh, great discussion about our mutual passion for Latvia's capital. 
Thank you, Jennifer. It was my great pleasure speaking with you. And uh, um, I look forward to, <laughs> we should start we'll that again. We'll get you I'm back. We'll, it's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I in my own words. That's all right. Take it away. Uh, I just, uh, thank you, Jennifer, for having me on your show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Okay, we'll have you back for the uh, the next installment of Riga's History. That's about all we have time for today. And you've been listening to the New Books Network. I am your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. Uh, I'll be back soon with another interview with an author about a new book. See you then. <laughs>